Indeed, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who was subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of us of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who that have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are none more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks, Aurelia. That's great. So let's just pray for Tim. Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for Tim, whose ear is sensitive to the words that you speak to him. And Lord, we pray that as he brings what you've given 
him for us tonight, Lord, that our hearts might be open to receive all that you have for us. And Lord, we pray for real transformation, Lord, tonight in our hearts, that we might leave here, Lord, truly transformed and different because the truths that Tim has brought from you, Lord, are embedded in our hearts and our minds. So, Lord, bless him as he speaks to us. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Victoria. So, we're going to look at this passage, Romans 8. My goodness, there's so much in Romans anyway. <laughs> and in Romans 8, in that passage that Aurelia brilliantly read for us, there's so much stuff. It's so dense, the theology. Paul kind of downloading, pouring out his heart, his passion, his, his kind of understanding of the nature of God and his relationship with God. So we're going to try and just do, do a little bit of this justice tonight and help us understand what God may be speaking to us through this passage. And there's three particular things in a moment that we're going to, we're going to kind of pull out from it. I was reflecting with um, Sarah the other day, my daughter Ellie, 16, got GCSEs this year. I don't know where that time went. And I, perhaps you've heard me say this before, but I remember when she was born. And when you bring your first child home, um, Steve and... Uh, we'll know this with Amy and uh, James with Caleb and obviously mums as well but for, as a dad you come home with this baby and no one tells you what to do you, you kind of get home you think what do I do now and you suddenly have this living, breathing, gurgling uh, smelly thing uh, that you love but you're quite terrified to, to know what to do with and I remember the first night when I came home with Ellie in our, uh, in our home in Bristol and we kind of took her up to uh, the, the kind of the room where she was staying and I put her down in her cot and I gently laid her down in, in her brand new bedroom. And later that night, um, we were reflecting on this, Sarah came in and she was telling me, she, she, so she came in and she found me looking down at this cot, just shaking my head in, in wonderment, just in unbelief, not, just finding it incredible as I was looking down. And as she, as she tells the story, she says, I was there looking kind of um, bewildered, excited, amazed, kind of teary-eyed, with a mixture of all sorts of emotions, no doubt, that goes with that. <clears throat> Skepticism, shock, incredulity, that's a good word. Lots, lots of kind of mixture of emotions you feel as you're looking down. And I was just standing there shaking my head, just going, it's incredible, it's amazing, it's unbelievable, it's incredible. It's incredible. And she kind of put her arms around my waist and said, oh, penny for your thoughts. That's the type of thing my mother used to say. And I just said, it's incredible. I, it's, I whispered, it's amazing. It's unbelievable. I can't believe it. How does Ikea make a cot like that for 25 pounds? <laughs> she kicked me. Uh, you know, I, I consider myself a good father most of the time, but sometimes I completely get it wrong. I consider myself a Christian, a, a good Christian. <laughs> I try to do my best. But there are times when we as good Christians, as good parents, as good fathers, can sometimes completely miss it, miss the point, and, and, and lose sight of the really important stuff. And I have to be honest, sometimes I read Romans, and you know, I've been a Christian now for quite a few years, and I read it and, and I recognise it, and my brain almost runs ahead because I know the words that are coming next, and I just sort of read it. And, and sometimes I miss the incredible truth 
that is in a passage like Romans 8. Staggering truth. And I think God wants to kind of stop us tonight. I really felt just the tenderness of God's spirit here as, as, as Dave and the band were leading worship. Just refocusing on, on the truth of the gospel and wanting us to remember what this is really, really all about. Kind of to put us in realignment, in a sense, with kind of heaven. There's, you can get a dislocated shoulder, can't you? And, and it's when it kind of gets out of socket and out of joint. And I feel like, you know, we have a plumb line. Use a plumb line to get something really straight. And it's almost like God is saying, for us as church, us as Christians, this is truth. And you need to know the truth. You know the truth and the truth will set you free. Romans chapter 8 is one of the most inspiring encouraging and thrilling chapters in the Bible, I would say, for the person who is in Christ Jesus. There's incredible truth that we need to get hold of. It begins and ends with two staggering concepts, right back in verse 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And it ends right at the end. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. So it's kind of, it's got these kind of brackets, no condemnation, no separation. And smack in the middle in verse 15, it talks about having no fear. So those are the three things that I want to talk about tonight. What does it mean to stand under absolutely no condemnation? What does it mean to be a people with no fear? And what does it mean to understand the remarkable truth of the promise that there's no separation? So first of all, no condemnation. Next Sunday is what? Mothering Sunday. It's all the women in the room who said that. Boys, if you've got a mother, next Sunday, husbands, next Sunday, mothering Sunday. Uh, Important Sunday in the calendar. Um, good one for us to remember. We've got a family service up at St. Tom's, family service for Mothering Sunday. Should be fun. Um, I shared this story a few years ago, but I just, I, I love stories. I collect stories. This is a true story. There was a guy called Michael Bressian, and he was a new father, and he wasn't about to let his, his wife's first kind of Mother's Day, Mothering Sunday pass uncelebrated. She was a nurse, though. Um, I know what that's like to be married to a nurse in those early years in marriage, and they're off at work. But he decided she's working, but um, being kind of Mothering Sunday, I'm going to make an effort. So uh, on that particular Sunday, when she was working at hospital, he grabbed their new son, Jason, put them in the, bi- in the kind of baby carrier, uh, and went down to the hospital. Uh, he took in loads of balloons and some chocolates and a kind of Mother's Day card, and the balloons had, you know, world's greatest mum on, and they went in and made a big fuss of her. She was really touched. All her co-workers and colleagues were, thought it was really sweet that this new father would do that. So it was a great Mother's Day. But after all the celebrating, of course, it was time he had to let his wife go back to work. He needed to go back home. So he went back to the car, tried to shove all the balloons in the cake that he'd bought and the presents for later on and kind of sorted everything out um, and started heading home, uh, waiting for his wife to get back. Um, And as he drove home, people started flashing him and hooting. And at first, he just thought they were being really friendly. <laughs> so he kind of waved back, as you do. I guess he thought they can see a car full of balloons and flowers. It looks really lovely. And they started um, flashing him back and hooting. 
and kind of waving at him. He carried on. When he got onto the kind of the dual carriageway, uh, he got up, as it happened in the States, he got up to 55 miles an hour, which was the limit there, started um, accelerating, got up to 55 miles an hour, and it was suddenly at that point he realised what was going on because he heard this long scraping sound on the roof of his car and in the mirror he saw the baby carrier bounce off the boot and shoot down the back of the dual carriageway. He'd got in the car, put the baby on the roof, as many dads do, shoving everything into the car, got in the car and drove off with the baby on the roof. <laughs> Mark laughs. Oh, the number of times I've done that, he thinks. <laughs> I mean, of course, you can imagine the horror for this guy. Slammed on his brakes, pulls, just abandons his car on the side of the road, runs back down the sobbing, runs back down the hard shoulder to, to, to the baby carrier, which was upside down, kind of just off the side of the road, flips it over, and there's little baby Jason smiling and cooing, wondering what's going on. Absolutely fine. I'm an incredible, incredible miracle. Waves of guilt, waves of shock, waves of I can't believe what I've done, waves of what is my wife going to say if she ever finds out. All of those things, I'm sure, kind of um, horrified him. And he just fell to his knees and started to sob. Um, it got into the local newspapers, understandably, because he was found on the side of the road just sobbing with the baby, unable to even get back in the car. A policeman stopped and found him there. Um, a reporter interviewed him. And his wife, Miriam, to be fair, showed amazing understanding. <laughs> she said, it's so unlike him. He really is a good father. Now, I, as I've said before, I, I, I'm always leaving things around. Uh, I, I have left a, a phone on the roof of my car. Um, actually, it was a friend's phone, so it was even worse, which got destroyed. Uh, I left a, roof, uh, a, a watch on a roof of a car in France and drove off. In Bristol, I left 500 alpha flyers in a box on the roof of my car and drove off. Um, I just like to call that creative community distribution. Um, uh, I've left a bag on a bus, I've left a coat on a train, uh, I've even left my heart in San Francisco, but I have not yet left one of my children on a roof of my car and driven off, which I guess makes me a better father than Michael Bressian, possibly. But there's a, and there's a part of us that says, how could he have done that? It's incredible, the most precious thing in the world. How could he have possibly have done that? But I think there's another part of us as human beings that recognise the propensity to do incredibly stupid things. And for us as Christians who know the truth, who know God's love, who, you know, we're, we're good people, suddenly to find ourselves in a situation where we have done the most ludicrously stupid thing that either hurts ourselves or hurts others. And being human is, also, is almost having the capacity to make terrible mistakes and to make a real mess up of things, to make wrong choices, to do the wrong thing, to say the wrong thing to hurt others, to hurt ourselves. Sometimes we do it knowingly, and sometimes we just do it by ignorance or fault. And most of us here will know that feeling of terrible guilt and shame, either because we've been found out or we just think, how can I have done this? How have I allowed this to happen? It's part of what it is almost to be human, and shame becomes a powerful, deathly, paralysing thing for us. We've all experienced that. And we see it right the way through the Bible. Whether it's Adam and Eve hiding in the garden because they've realised what they've done. Hiding away in shame. 
Whether it's the woman at the well, I was preaching about the woman at the well from John 4 today um, as part of the lectionary at St. Tom's. I was preaching about this woman who clearly was in a kind of messed up litany of broken relationships with other guys where she seems to have been almost passed around like a handbag. She's been married five times, the person she's with now wasn't her husband. Let's remember in those days a woman couldn't divorce a husband. It's only a husband who could divorce a woman. So she'd been divorced five times by a bloke and then passed on someone else. Shame, guilt, so much so that she's going at the hottest point of the day to go and fill her bucket of water. You didn't do that. You didn't go to the well at at noon. You didn't go at lunchtime, but she did because obviously she'd been rejected. She felt terrible shame. Whether it's a woman caught in adultery, again, only the woman dragged there. As far as I'm aware, it takes two people to be in an adulterous relationship. Where's the guy? He wasn't there, was he? It was the woman dragged in front of Jesus, shamed, broken. And in all those situations, mercy triumphs over judgment. God intervenes beautifully to bring transformation. So Romans 8 begins with one of the greatest promises in the Bible, I think. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And maybe we read that and maybe we believe it, but do you really, really know it here? There's no condemnation. No, none. Zero for those who are in Christ Jesus. And even standing there itself... I think those words should make our hearts flutter. Is that true? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? The significance of the fact that in spite of our sin, in spite of our spectacular failures, God doesn't condemn us is overwhelming in of itself, I think. There's an interesting word at the beginning, therefore. Let me hear you say therefore. Oh, that was, that was pathetic. Come on, if you were in a Pentecostal church, you'd all shouted at me. Say, therefore. therefore. That's great, that'll be good on the tape. We'll edit the first one out. Is that okay? Therefore, it says, back in verse 8, therefore there is now no condemnation. That word therefore is there for a reason. It kind of places great emphasis on what's been said before and then what's to follow. And what's been said before, not just in chapter 7, but right the way through, right back to Romans 1, is Paul, in a sense, theologically unburdening himself about the reality of the brokenness of the world and primarily himself. Because throughout those first seven chapters, Paul speaks about condemnation, speaks about brokenness. So when you read this verse at the beginning of chapter 8, therefore is kind of like a line in the sand saying... This is the reality of brokenness in all of our lives, including me. But there's really good news. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's kind of a sea change at that moment. It makes it staggering. Chapter 7, I think, is one of the most powerful statements about the struggling with sin that we can read about in history, in the history of all literature. Um, what makes it so powerful is that Paul is providing us a glimpse into his own struggles. He's not talking about people's struggles. He's not talking about the world's struggles. He brings it home to himself and says, do you know what, I'm a real rat bag. That's the kind of message, translation perhaps. Paul, I always think of someone who's bigger than life. I see him standing up, defending his faith, you know, even to death, in front of the Roman governors, in front of the emperor, boldly and, boldly and fearlessly proclaiming truth. I think of him going on all his great missionary journeys um, out into the kind of Roman Empire. 
I think of his letters to the church to be faithful, these kind of beautiful written letters, and his encouragements to Timothy and to Titus to remain true to their calling. And it's easy to put Paul on this kind of pedestal as the great spiritual kind of general. And I get why we do that, and there's many things to commend him. But when we come to chapter 7 of Romans, you, you get a kind of peek behind the curtain looking at this apostle. And he's a lot more human than maybe we thought. Paul, like you and me, really struggles with sin. Let me read um, some of what, it, what he says in chapter 7. You'll recognize this. Uh, this is chapter 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, And if what I do, I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Down to verse, uh, just before verse 18, part of verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do, not what I want to do, it's no longer I who does it, for it's the sin living in me that does it. He's saying, I know, I know what I should be doing. I know I want to do good things. I actually do want to do them, but I don't do those things. The things that I don't want to do, all the sin and the brokenness, they're the things I just keep doing. I keep falling into sin. I keep tripping. I, I, you know, I'm like a slave to sin and the brokenness. And he recognises the tendency in humanity to get caught in this stranglehold of sin that can squeeze the life and the hope and the breath out of us and can fill us with shame and brokenness and failure and despair. And this isn't Paul talking about the way he used to be sinful before becoming a Christian, I think. This is Paul saying, just this morning I gave in to that temptation again. Just today I, I found myself stumbling again. I wonder how many of you have prayed that or thought, Lord, I've done it again. I can't believe it. Why do I keep doing this? Earlier in his letter, he proclaims, no one is righteous, not even one. And later says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he's saying here, you know, it's me. I struggle with sin and I lose. And the frustration of losing seems to break through to the surface as Paul says, verse um, 22 to 24, let me read this to you. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's kind of how he feels. I wonder how many of you feel like that. And it's so easy to kick ourselves or to look at ourselves in the mirror and just hate what we see because we feel like we're spectacularly failing and God must really, really, really hate us, be disappointed in us. Disappointment such an awful thing, isn't it? <laughs> I think there's nothing worse than a parent not kind of getting really angry and shouting at you, that's awful, but when a parent looks at you quietly and shakes his or her head and says, I'm really disappointed in you. Oh, that's a killer sometimes, isn't it? And, and we think our Father in Heaven's going, you know, Tim, I'm so disappointed in you. I had such great plans for you, but here you are again. And we, we, we kind of hear that tape playing in our head. And we run like Adam or Eve and we hide. A thousand times in a thousand ways we perhaps try to live by the standards that you know are right. But like Michael Bressian, even though you knew better, you do the really dumb thing. 
because you're too rushed or because you're too stressed or because it's easy to give in to temptation or you're just unable to manage things. And now you feel stupid, filthy, wretched, as, Paul, as the language Paul kind of uses. So where does Paul go from there? So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Verse 8, Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because he realises that it's all about Jesus. Who will save me from this brokenness? Who will save me? Well, Jesus saves us. That's the whole point. He becomes our hope. He becomes our strength. He is the one whose grace is available for us. The greatness of the promise of God's grace is that even when we fall, the truth is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's security in our relationship with God if we're in Christ. We don't need to worry if God is angry with us in that way that kind of throws us out of the room because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't need to fear the Father's wrath. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When God looks at you, he doesn't see a wretch. He sees a son or a daughter. Yes, the sin and brokenness in our lives he despises, but you he loves, which is why he's committed to keep transforming you and training you and wooing you and drawing you from a place of brokenness and sin, not by beating you with a big stick, saying, come on, be holy, but saying, come on, you can be holy because I'm holy. And he draws us with his cords of loving kindness because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the story of the prodigal son, isn't it, in a sense? The boy disregards his father and then disgraces himself in every way possible. As I said before, we don't, we don't realise how low he falls. He was a Jew, and where does he end up eating pig food? It would have made the Jews shudder. The lowest of the low, eating pig food in a pigsty with unclean animals. Dr. Vernon McGee, who's an American pastor, he asked this, Do you know the difference between the sun in that pigsty and the pig? The difference is that no pig has ever said to himself, I will arise and go to my father. And when that dirty, stinking, broken child came within eyesight of home, his father, his papa, was looking and longing for him. He didn't lecture him and say, I told you so. He didn't give him the long speech, well, you know, if you're repentant, I can tell you. What happens? He sees him a long way off and runs to him. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A repentant heart, a heart that says, Father, I'm broken, draws the Father's love and transforming power because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Say no. Say no. <laughs> no condemnation. Not, not, just not much condemnation. I think that's what we sometimes think as Christians. There's not much condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's, not, it's just, just a tiny weeny bit of con. No condemnation. Either Paul's lying or he's telling the truth. No condemnation. We struggle with that. In Greek, the, the text literally reads, no condemnation, therefore, for those in Christ, Jesus Christ. 
It's been in Jesus. In Genesis 6-4, God tells Noah to build the ark and it's covered in pitch to make it waterproof. Um, the word kefa, pitch, uh, it's, it's used, it also means atonement. It means covering, to make a covering, an atonement for sin. And so the, the kind of picture of Noah's ark is like, it's the ark that we're in for salvation, for safety, for, 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 to be free. It's a place of safety and salvation. God's pointing to something bigger with the story of Noah. He's pointing to Jesus. He's point, pointing to Jesus and saying, are you in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, your sin has been atoned for. It's covered. That's the Father. Do you know the Father like that? Just the last two, much more quickly. In the middle, fear. I used to wear lots of no fear stuff when I became a Christian. Because for me, fear had a massive hold on my life. And when God set me free from fear, I really began to understand that God actually wants to take our fear away from us. We can cry out, we heard in that passage, Abba, Father. Abba means Papa, Daddy. It speaks of relational intimacy with God. And when you're fearful, a child runs to the Father. Papa. You know, when, when, a, child, when a child cries out, Daddy, a father's heart turns immediately towards the child. And God is saying, I want to remove from you fear, fear of the future, fear of me, fear of the unknown, fear of the dark. It might be physical fears or spiritual fears or fears of the future or fears of um, relationship breakdown or fears of isolation or rejection. And sometimes we wear masks to cope with our fear because actually we're afraid inside, but we put on a mask to try and cope with the world to appear that we're okay. But God wants to take our masks off to reveal the true you and actually say to you, I don't want you to put on a mask, I want you to simply be healed and free from fear. Maybe you have fear of rejection or fear of being unlovable, fear of failure. Satan wants to rob. He wants, he, he's the thief, the liar. He comes to steal, kill and destroy. But John 10.10 10 talks about the good shepherd and God is good all the time. He wants to free us from our fear. There's no condemnation in Christ. And he wants you to have no fear. Because God's perfect love casts out fear. And if you know there's no condemnation and the, and the Father is good, and you know the Father's love, then fear has no place to lurk. Because fear gets slowly pushed out of our hearts and our lives. And the last thing, number three. We've had no condemnation. God wants us to not have a spirit of fear, to have no fear, but a spirit of sonship, daughterhood. We can say Abba, Father. And the last thing is no separation. As I said, chapter 8 starts with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. That's the heart of a father. The father says, I don't condemn you. I don't push you away. I want to draw you to myself. And there's nothing that can take you. Don't be afraid of being pulled away. Maybe some of you remember what it is as a child to be lost in a supermarket. I could still remember, I'd have probably been about six or seven, being lost in the co-op in Whitstable, turn a corner and suddenly your mum's not there. And that terrifying rising panic of, oh, I'm alone and, and, and uh, uh, who's going to feed me and how do I get home and I'm lost. And, you know, that, that is, it's kind of irrational. Of course, we get that now as an adult. But as a child, it's really real, isn't it? Hands up if you ever, got, ever remember that as a child. That's quite a lot of us, and some of you are probably too scared to admit to it. 
Fear is a really powerful thing. And that's fear of separation, fear of being cut off, fear of being lost. And the Father says, because I don't condemn you, and because I love you, I'm never going to cut you off. You don't need to worry about falling out of my hands. You don't need to worry that I'm, I'm going to reject you. And we say, but Father, often I let go of you. Often, often I, I, you know, my, my faith is so weak and I fail and I sin. And the Father says, I know. And I want to transform you. But I'm good all the time. Hey, hold my hand. It's okay, you can trust me, I'm a vicar. And God takes hold of us by his righteous right hand, it says. And it says, see, I've, I've inscribed your name on the palm of my hand. And he says, I take hold of you and I pull you from the pit of despair. And at times, we let go of God. Or we start to let our relationships... You can let go of me. Go on. But I'm not letting go of him. Why? Because there's no condemnation and I love my boy. Because there's no separation for those who are in Christ. I, I want to hold Hayden because he's my, he's my brother. He's my son. He's my child. That's the heart of the father that says, there's no condemnation. There's no fear in our relationship because I'm a God who is good all the time and I love you and I uphold you in my righteous right hand. And therefore, there's no separation. You don't need to be afraid. It says that so clearly, doesn't it? We're more than conquerors. Maybe you feel like a victim. Maybe you feel like a loser. Maybe you feel like really war-weary and you've been beaten by the power of sin. But God says, no, you're a conqueror. More than a conqueror through him who loved us. It's all through Christ. And he wants you to be convinced. Paul's convinced. The Father wants you to be convinced so that you can say this hand on heart. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel nor demon, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, me, from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I wonder if you know that. No condemnation. God doesn't want you to have fear. And he wants you to know that nothing can separate you from his love. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to play a video to finish. We don't normally do this, but I just want to play a video before we go straight into communion. It's some music, but it's also some words from John Piper. Many of you will have heard John Piper. It's taken from some of the stuff of a sermon he's preached. I want, and it may mean we finish five minutes late, but tonight I think it's important to get this truth, the truth of God's word, into our spirits so as I play this, you might want to look at it. But more importantly, I want your heart to be open. Lord, let's pray. Lord, would you speak your truth into our heart? These aren't just nice Christian cliches. These aren't just nice sentiments. Lord, this is either true or it's not. And Lord, I know it's true. That there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of power, of power love and sound mind. And he's called us into adoption as sons and daughters of the kings. We're heirs with Christ. We're royalty. And so there's no fear. And there's no fear of separation because nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither height nor depth, neither angel nor demon, neither the past and all our mistakes and the times we've left children on the roof of a car and driven off. None of that, nor the future and the mistakes that we may make again. None of that will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you speak to our spirits and help truth to resonate deep in us, we pray. Amen. Let's play this video.